How's everyone doing this morning? Blessed. Good, good, good. It's great to be here again. Uh, we're going to jump right in this morning. Last week, uh, we're, we're going to be back in the book of 1 Peter. We're almost done with 1 Peter. Um, if everything goes as planned, hopefully next week we will finish 1 Peter. I know some of you, you're not necessarily done hearing from me yet, but we'll move on to something else. We'll wrap up this letter of 1 Peter um, hopefully, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but last week we looked at seven spiritual duties that are expected of us, and indeed we should do them gladly and with joyful hearts as recipients of God's saving grace. And if you'll think back, our, I ended our time in the Word last week with a question. In light of these spiritual duties, this example, I asked you, where are your weaknesses and what are you going to do about them? I challenged you not just to acknowledge your weaknesses, but to go to the Lord in prayer and craft a, a plan of action to live more intentionally for God's glory. It's not enough just to recognize these things, but then what we have to act on it. What are we going to do about it? And I left it there for a reason. And it's, it's vital that we are intentional in all that we do to conform to the example of Christ, the example that He gave us in His life, so as to make the most of the time and the resources we have been given, but even the best and most sincere plans are quickly and often derailed when times get hard and when persecution arises. When I was a school teacher, every year we had a, a packet. We were given a new packet every year, and it contained what were called plans of action for various scenarios, and we spent at least part of an in-service day reviewing modifying and rehearsing these plans so that in the event of a fire or a tornado or an earthquake or active shooter or whatever other traumatic event, we weren't caught completely off guard. And we would know how to respond without having to stop and think about it, without leaving anything to chance. The goal was to be ready so that we could react quickly to a situation rather than panic or be paralyzed. Peter knows all too well what happens to the best of intentions when one takes his eyes off the goal and focuses on the waves. In today's text, Peter's continuing the summary of our response to suffering and persecution as Christ followers by giving us a plan of action. We're going to distinguish five directives for our response to the persecution and suffering that is sure to come if we resemble Christ so that we can maintain our heavenly focus and continue to live intentionally for the glory of God, no matter our circumstances. So that when a situation arises, we are ready and prepared to respond accordingly and to stand firm against the opposition that we're sure to face. As I was thinking through this concept of Christian suffering, I, re I remembered a story I heard a long time ago. And since I hadn't referenced the greatest philosopher whatever did come out of South Mississippi in a while, I figured I would share this story with you all this morning. This morning, Jerry Clower tells this story. His, his uncle Bunk had a sick mule, and his neighbors came over to check on it, and they all agreed that the mule had the colic. Now, Mr. D. Lauder asked, well, how do you treat a mule with the colic? Nobody knew, but one of them said, you know, Uncle Versi Ledbetter, he had a mule with the colic last summer, and I think he treated his mule. Why don't you go ask him? So, 
Mr. Bunk went to see Uncle Versi and asked him how did he treat his mule what had the colic. And Uncle Versi said, well, he got, get, get you a half a gallon of coal in a jug and drench that mule. Now what that means, that's hold his head up and pour it in his mouth. And he said, when, when it gets in there, when it, when it, as it's going down, you might have to rub his throat a little to get it to go down all the way. So that's what Uncle Bunk did. He got him a half a gallon of coal oil and drenched his mule and made him drink it all. And the mule fell over, graveyard dead. Well, naturally, he went back to Uncle Versi and said, Well, I don't understand. I gave him that coal oil, just like you said, and the mule fell over dead. Uncle Versi said, Yep, mine did too. <laughs> you see, Uncle Bunk had asked the wrong question. He asked, How did you treat the mule? He didn't ask what happened. He didn't ask how to successfully treat the mule. He asked the wrong question. And often when we think of Christian suffering, we too tend to ask the wrong questions. We tend to come at it from a wrong perspective or with some wrong assumptions. We come at it from the wrong angle and we're shocked when we try to obey Christ and suffering comes as a result. And this is what Peter addresses in the latter half of chapter 4. So turn with me there, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. That's on page 1296 of your pew Bible. And if you will, let's all stand in honor of God's Word as we read today's text. We're going to start in verse 12 and finish on through the rest of chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. Lord, we thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for all the the grace and the mercy that you have showered upon us each and every day, so far above and beyond anything we could possibly deserve. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to take this time in your word for granted. Lord, we thank you for your word and the free access that we have to it. We thank you for just the fact that you are holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and that you never change. And that the, the God that we read about in your word uh, that Peter spoke of is the same God that's here in our midst today. Lord, we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Lord, I pray that these words will be your words and not mine, that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would change us and mold us into your image, that we might be encouraged to stand firm on your word, to trust your promises and to follow you um, and be lights in this, uh, in, a, in a dark world, in a, a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, we love you and we praise you and it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, so I told you we were going to look at five directives, five directives that we see in this text here 
as to how we are to, to respond to Christian suffering. And right off the bat here in verse 12, we're going to get the first one. And that is that we should not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Directive number one. He starts off in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now notice the term when here. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Not if it comes, but when it comes. As we have already established in this letter, we've seen time and time and time again, Peter is reminding his audience that suffering and persecution for righteousness' sake, for righteousness sake comes with following Christ. And we've seen over and over and over again, and this just lends importance to what Peter is saying here by looking back and we see that Peter is not saying this in a vacuum. He's not the only one. This doesn't just come from Peter. We know this is, a, this is not just unique to this particular church, but that this, is, that this is the norm for the church across the board because we see this throughout the New Testament. Paul agrees with Peter in 2 Timothy 3.12. Look what Paul writes. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't get much more black and white than that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, we see Paul here refer to this persecution as will be rather than may be. But it's not just Peter and Paul. Jesus, likewise, in John 15, 19, says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. doesn't say might hate you. It says it does. If you look like me, it hates you like it hated me. And also, Jesus says, again, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others win others. Catch that? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even before you, if you look back through the Old Testament, the men and women who followed the Lord suffered and were persecuted because of it. This has always been the case throughout all of human history. Go all the way back to Genesis. Look at Noah. Was Noah persecuted? Did Noah suffer in, in his lifetime for doing what God had asked him to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. So step one of Peter's plan of action for these believers is don't be surprised when persecution comes, but rather expect it. Know that it's coming. If it's not here right now, if you are legitimately following Christ, if you are seeking His will in your life, then count your blessings because it's on its way. When it comes, expect it. Be sober-minded. We've seen this pop up. Peter's used that phrase over and over and over again. Be sober-minded. Be ready for it so that when it comes, we're not caught off guard. In fact, it's not... Again, here's where we get to where we often look at it wrong when we often ask the wrong question. Because the fact is, it's not the presence of persecution and suffering that should surprise us, but the absence of it. That's what should be abnormal for the Christ follower. Jesus, Peter, and Paul in these examples all unequivocally claimed that suffering would come as a direct result of living a life conformed to the example of and submission to the will of God. 
To follow Christ is to pay a price in this world, and those two things are not separable. Those two things are intricately woven together, intricately interconnected. There's your tongue twister for the day, by the way. And that's a sobering thought. That's a, that's a convicting thought, I would imagine, for most of us here this morning. Now, that does not mean that we should go around being obnoxious with the hope of being persecuted because of it. All right. we, we do not desire persecution. Paul refers to it as a fiery trial here. It's hard, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's not fun. No one wants that. No one should enjoy that. We don't desire suffering and persecution for the sake of suffering and persecution, but persecution and reviling is the natural response of a sinful world to the presence of God. If a sinful world is comfortable with and accepting of your faith, then chances are what they see in you is not the God of the Bible. Let that sink in for a minute. If a sinful world is comfortable with your faith, if they're accepting of your faith, then chances are the God they see you serving is not the God in the Bible. Chances are what they see in you is not the gospel as outlined in God's word because the darkness hates the light, period. The darkness hates the light because it exposes sin for what it is. The two cannot coexist. I'm reminded of this is one of my, it pains me every time I see it, but I see these stickers everywhere on the backs of vehicles. Maybe you've seen them. It's, it's the word coexist spelled out in symbols from all the different world religions. All right? Those things cannot coexist. It's not possible. If all those things, if all those different worldviews can all coexist and all get along, then, then none of them actually stand for anything. None of them actually stand for anything. If we follow Christ in submission to His example and stand firm on the teachings in His Word, then people will see the unmistakable evidence in your life and in your speech, and some will be drawn to God, but many more will persecute you, as they did Him because you look like Him. Those are the two responses. There's not this, this mutual coexistence. There's not this accepting and this agree to disagree and we can all get along and we can all work to that. that. That doesn't exist. Either they are going to see the truth or they are going to reject the truth. Either they're going to be drawn to God or they are going to run from Him and persecute you in the process. And not only this, but He says it comes upon you to test you. Meaning it's neither random nor outside of God's control. God is sovereign over all, including persecution. And He has a plan for you in it. Which means that God hasn't abandoned you in the midst of suffering for His sake. Again, we tend to look and we, when we face hardship, when we face persecution or suffering for doing what God has asked us to do, we tend to look at that and we look at the world around us and we look at God and go, Why, God, where are you? And that's the wrong question. Because God is right there. God is sovereignly in control of that. If we're following God, if we're following Christ and that leads us into persecution, then God's not going to lead us there and leave us there. Persecution and hardship are part of the deal. So if you are a Christ follower, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard when it comes. Don't be caught off guard when it comes. God hasn't abandoned you in the midst of your suffering for His sake. Don't be caught off guard, but rather rejoice. 
rejoice. Now, that's, that's hard for us to comprehend how those two things can go together, suffering and persecution and joy. And a lot of times we tend to draw, try to draw a distinction between happiness and joy as if they're two different things, and I think we're, I think we're trying to split hairs when we do that. I think we're trying to, um, again, I, I, I don't know that that's, that that's what Peter's after here. Look at what he says. In verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, he uses the, the word rejoice and be glad in the same sentence here. A lot of times we try to draw that distinction between happiness and joy, and is there a little bit of difference in the term? Yes. But a lot of times we tend to say, well, you don't have to be happy about it, but you can find joy in it anyway. And that's not, that, that's not really the way it works. That's, that's trying to give God an out. That's trying to not embrace or accept or trust God when we come to some of these difficult teachings. Jesus literally says to find, we can find joy in these moments. And it's not just Peter, because Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are them. Happy are them. Joyful are them. Look at Philippians 4, 4. We see Paul say the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Don't be surprised when persecution comes for following Christ, but find joy in it. How hard is that? Because we've already acknowledged that persecution and suffering are not fun. Those are not pleasant things to experience. So how can we find joy in something that is unpleasant? How hard is it to rejoice always in any and every circumstance? But when we stop and think about it, this response flows logically from the previous directive. We are to rejoice for two reasons. Number one, as Peter has already illustrated, suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for following Christ. Suffering because, of, because your life resembles and mirrors His actually serves as evidence of the Holy Spirit within you. In reality, it's not you that the world hates, but rather the Spirit of God working in you and through you. It's God that they see in you. That's why they hate you. It's the God your life points to that the world hates. So in that sense, persecution serves as evidence that the sinful world sees Christ in you. Can we find joy in that? Should that put a smile on our face when we think about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But also, number two, persecution and suffering for being obedient to Christ is evidence that, as we saw earlier, that God has not abandoned you, but rather that God is actively working in your life. Growing and strengthening your faith, as well as revealing His glory to the world around you. And we can find joy in the midst of pain and suffering for Christ in recognizing that this suffering is God at work in us. Realizing that God is working in us, should that not bring a smile to our face when we recognize that? Absolutely. Does that make it easier? Not necessarily. But can we find, can we, when we stop and we focus our minds and think about it correctly, can we find, should we find joy in the midst of suffer, suffering for Christ's sake? Absolutely. There should be a measure of hope and joy. When we find ourselves falling into despair, when we stop and look back and recognize what God is doing, all right, we can walk back from the brink of despair and find joy in those circumstances. 
This does not mean that suffering is not painful or difficult because it most certainly is. But if we are expecting it, if we're, if we're ready for it, if we're expecting it to come, and we've thought through the, our, our theology, our understanding of suffering in advance, then when it comes, we can find joy in the midst of trying times, knowing that it is evidence of God's work in your life and assurance of having obtained the salvation that we will ultimately experience in the end. But there's one caveat, one clarification, I guess would be better, that we need to make, and that is directive number three. Peter says, be blameless, because if we, don't, if we don't qualify it this way, we can misinterpret what Peter is saying here. There's nothing inherently righteous about pain and suffering for pain and suffering's sake. Look at what Peter says in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now, up front, we must confess that none of us will ever be perfect on this side of eternity. That's, we're, we're not going to be. But that's not the point that Peter's making here. He's not saying that we are going to be perfect in everything that we do. What he's pointing out is that we must make sure that the suffering and persecution that we endure is actually unjust. We tend to look at suffering and persecution, and we want to hold and, and grab onto the promise that, that Peter made here. And we, oftentimes we struggle to find joy in the midst of suffering and pain because we are the cause of our suffering and pain. There's a very big difference between just suffering and unjust suffering. And Peter says, make sure when we're talking about Christian suffering, make sure you're suffering for Christ's sake. Not all suffering and persecution is blessed and joyful. Jesus says the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.11. We've already read that, but just to, to reiterate, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, is the key word there on my account. The key word is falsely. In fact, we just discussed this in youth this past Wednesday night. The blessed man is whom the world hates because of his devotion to Christ. Blessed is the man that people have to make up false things to say about him because they can't find anything legitimate to accuse him of. Jesus himself was persecuted and suffered and arrested on false charges. And they had to falsely accuse him and subject him to an unjust and an unfair trial in order to get an unjust punishment because there was nothing legitimate with which to accuse him. He had done no wrong. He had done no wrong. Daniel, likewise, is another example. They had to trap him by twisting the law, and ultimately, what was Daniel accused of? All they had to accuse him of, to accuse him of was his devotion to God. That's all they had against him. They had no legitimate complaint against his character or his actions. Peter says, be sure their accusations against you are false. Suffering for sin is not righteous. It is deserved. If you go to jail for murder, that is not godly suffering. That is just punishment. If you are a gossip, don't complain about being left out of the loop. That's not godly suffering. There is no joy or encouragement or assurance of salvation to be found in facing consequences for doing what is evil. The godly suffering that we are to expect as Christ followers is after the mold of Daniel and after the mold of the example of Jesus himself, as well as a host of other faithful men and women throughout the Bible and throughout church history. Godly suffering that should lead to joy and assurance 
And closeness with God is that which is undeserved, caused solely by our devotion to Christ and the sinful world's opposition to Him. When we are persecuted because we ally ourselves with Christ, that is the persecution that Peter is talking about that will come. That is the persecution, that is the suffering, that is the pain that we can find joy in as Christ followers. That is the suffering that brings joy. Christian suffering that comes from standing firm on the Word of God in the face of opposition by the world and suffering the consequences of choosing to follow Christ rather than compromise with the world. That's the suffering that brings joy. When we suffer justly for our own sinful actions, that should be shameful for a Christ follower, or anyone for that matter, but specifically for one claiming Christ. However, if we suffer for doing what God has said is right and good, then Peter says in verse 16, Peter says, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. That's directive number four. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now remember the term Christian was originally a derogatory term that the followers, many followers of Christ over the centuries have just embraced because it means like Christ or little Christ. Again, Paul teaches likewise in Romans chapter 1. Look what Paul says. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Did Paul face pain and suffering and persecution for choosing to follow Christ, for leaving his old life behind, for repenting of his former way of life and following Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. And through it all, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because that is the power of God. For salvation. There is shame in facing the consequences of our sin. We should feel shame when we suffer for doing what is wrong. And we've all experienced that. There's no better example. If you've never experienced this, then maybe one day you'll get the opportunity to do so. There's no better example than the face of one of those ASP children whom Miss Tammy has caught doing something that they knew was wrong and they are slowly marching up the ramp to Pastor Mark's office. You can see the shame written all over their face. All uh, that, that, that is, the, that is the, the perfect example right there. But the same is true of adults. If you get called into the boss's office or you get a nasty phone call from a client for doing a poor job on a job site or for performing a task incorrectly or sloppily, there, there's shame in that. There, we should feel bad about those things. There's shame in facing the consequences of sin, but there is no shame in the gospel, no matter what consequences we might face in this world. When we understand, as Paul states, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then what can man do to me? Why should I be ashamed of the power of God in the face of mankind? Because in the grand scheme of things, what can man do to me? This takes us back to the idea that we've already laid out, that Peter has already established that we should fear God more than man. Therefore, Peter points out that if the world penalizes us for believing the gospel and living obediently to it, there's no shame in that. Bring it on. I'm reminded here of the apostles' reaction to being arrested for preaching the name of Christ in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40. They've been arrested. 
before preaching the gospel. We've seen, we've, we've gone through Acts. Most of you will, will remember that's been, been a while back. But we, we saw how the Holy Spirit came. We saw the change in the apostles and how they began preaching and teaching and spreading out from Jerusalem. And we see in Acts chapter 5, they've been arrested. In verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Is that suffering? Persecution? Absolutely. But look at their response. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ, is Jesus. This is an attitude void of shame, yet filled with joy in the face of legitimate physical persecution for proclaiming the gospel. They were physically beaten for their faith and for teaching their faith, and they rejoiced when it was over and continued all the more. Too often we, we get this reversed. We're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of Christ, and we're unwilling to allow our lives to be different from the world. But we suppress or deny or, de- or ignore or become desensitized to the shame of sin in our lives and in the world around us. We don't want to... We, we, we want to suppress that shame. We want to hide that. We want to cover it. But we're willing to openly distance ourselves from the gospel and from Christ and from, a, and from living obediently in any way that's going to make our lives different because that might... I'm going to, I want to distance myself from the consequences of those actions. I don't want to do that or I want to kind of do it underhanded. I want to do just enough so I can check the box and say, well, I didn't technically deny Christ, but I didn't take a stand for him either. We get it reversed. We're all too often ashamed of Christ and unashamed of the sinful pattern of our lives. What claim do we have to the term follower of Christ? The the, the term Christian, if we're ashamed of Christ, if we're more ashamed of Christ than we are the sin in our own lives, the sin that we're supposed to be fighting. What does it say about our faith if we fear the mocking of man more than the eternal rejection of God? Peter is Peter's sympathetic here. It's easy to, to, to read this and think that Peter is being high-handed. Like, like just, like what, what are you doing? Come on, come on, guys. Get, it, get your act together. Don't, don't fear God, or don't fear man, fear God. Don't deny Christ. How dare you do that? All right. Peter's not being high-handed. Peter sympathizes with them. Peter knows what it means to deny Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and, he said, and she said to the bystanders, hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter swore with an oath, I don't know him. 
But look at what, look at Peter's reaction. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Shame. He was not bold. He was caught off guard. And in the end, he fell into sin and he was ashamed of it. But this is not the end of the story. For Peter was forgiven by God. Give it another chance. And he was the leader of the apostles later on in Acts 5 who was beaten and mocked and all the while who leaves there rejoicing having been found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Peter was right there in the mix. This is the difference the presence of the Holy Spirit makes in the life of a Christ follower. Totally different reaction. Let us pray today for the boldness to set our eyes toward Christ and to follow Him in obedience with the same joyful attitude as the apostles in Acts 5, unashamed at the insults of the world, but glorifying God in all we do no matter what. Don't be ashamed, but stand firm upon the Word of God in the power of His Spirit. And number five, trust God. Trust Him. Look at verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says the judgment will first begin with the household of God. And then clarified that he's speaking of the church. He shifts from addressing personal persecution to the church corporately. Judgment begins with the church as God will. Through persecution and hardship, God will confirm those with genuine faith through their obedience and expose those who do not obey as faithless. We are in the last days and this time has come. We see this all around us today. In, in our time, in real time, we can see this coming to fruition. We can see God purifying His church and purging it of those who were merely deceiving themselves and whose faith is nothing more than empty words. We see that in our lifetimes taking place right now. In Matthew chapter 25, I invite you to go back and read that. We don't have time to cover all that today, but Jesus gives this analogy of in the end, He will separate the sheep from the goats. In Malachi chapter 3, we talked this morning about how there will be, in the end, there will be a clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And that is, and God is in the process of that as we speak. All people fall into one of two categories. Either you are obedient to God or you are disobedient to God. Either you have saving faith or you do not. And Peter says at that point, when the, when the split has been made... At that point, what will be the outcome of those who have rejected God? Those who have resisted His call to repentance. Those who have continued in disobedience. If it's only through difficulty and, and hardship, the narrow path and the small gate that the righteous are saved, what will become of the one who rejects God in favor of satisfying the desires and cares of the world? And this is a rhetorical question because the answer should be obvious by this point. God is just, and His judgment will fall on all sin and all sinners. All who refuse to repent and believe and obey will be justly condemned 
to eternity in hell under God's wrath and judgment. The day is coming. The day of the Lord is near. We know that God is just. And though He is patient now, He will not ultimately, His will will not ultimately be thwarted. His patience will come to its fullness and it will end. And there will be no more chances. And the sheep will be separated from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And there will be no more chances. That day is coming soon. So Peter's call, his encouragement is to trust in the Lord's goodness. Trust in the Lord's justice and be faithful to Him and obedient to Him and submissive to His will in your life and trust Him with your soul. If you are in Christ and you live to serve Him, then as surely as He will judge evil and the doers of evil, He will save those who are faithful to Him. When God calls us to suffer, when God calls us to be persecuted, trust Him to be faithful. Set your face upon Him and stand firm. That, that encouragement right there, that's the main point of this letter. And that's, that's the main point. That's why that's the title of this series, Stand Firm. That's Peter's encouragement. He's not being high-handed. He's not trying to discourage these believers. All of this, this entire letter is built to encourage them to stand firm in the face of mounting persecution. Persecution that's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Be ready. As we conclude our time together this morning, as Michelle and the praise team get ready to lead us once again in worship, I want to draw your attention real quick to the man who suffered unjustly more than any other man, second only to Jesus himself, and that is Job. Let's look at Job real quick. May we face whatever suffering God has called us to in this life as Job did. Look at Job's response. When in one fell swoop, he lost his entire family and all of his possessions. Look at in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That we would be motivated. Pray that we would be motivated all to respond the way that Job did. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to take that plan of action and put it into practice. And he's motivated all the while, that we would be motivated all the while to endure persecution, to worship the Lord, to be faithful, to stand firm no matter what, by holding on to the same motivation that Job did in verses 19, or chapter 19, verse 25. He says, when, when, when his friends come and try to tell him, here's all the things that you've done wrong, just walk away from God, give up. Job says, no, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last... He will stand upon the earth. Remember also, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Let us live there. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Find joy in walking the path that God has laid out for you. Turning neither to the right nor to the left and not being ashamed of the gospel. 
but rather trusting in the all-powerful, all-sufficient God of the universe who sent His Son to die in our place for our sin that we might turn from them and be redeemed. If you are in Christ, remember what He has already secured for you And as you leave this place this morning, as you go out into a dark and sinful world, remember the encouragement of Peter to stand firm. Stand firm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for this letter of Peter's and the encouragement that it brings at a time when we as a church so desperately need to hear it. When it seems like darkness is winning, when it seems like the world is becoming, is embracing evil at a scale and to a, at a speed that we've never seen before. When it seems like there's no hope in sight. Lord, we know that there is. We know that you are in control. That you are sovereign over all. And Lord, we know that as Christ followers, we were called to suffer. Lord, help us not to Help us not to fear it. Help us not to see it as a burden. Help, us not, help it not to be discouraging for us or discouraging us from following you. But Lord, help us to, to prepare for battle. Lord, help us to see that as our calling in life, to suffer in this world the way you did, to suffer for your name so that our lives might serve as an example to those around us of the hope and the grace and the mercy that you have that's freely offered. Lord, use us. Let us be your witnesses. Let us be lights in the darkness. And let us be willing to pay whatever the price to be used by you. Lord, help us again to see that as our calling and help us to stand firm. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your grace for the mercy that you've shown us at the cross, that you came and you loved the unlovable simply because you wanted to display your glory to the world. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown us and that you have grafted us into that plan. Lord, help us to embrace that. Lord, help us to be to rejoice in being counted worthy to be a light for you. And Lord, may our worship of you this morning be from a heart attitude that loves you above all, that seeks to bring honor and glory to your name above all. Recognizing who you are and what you've done, and Lord, let us praise you for that this morning. I pray that our worship would be pleasing to your ear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.